Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. As we know, as we got the background to this epistle, remember that at this time that Paul the Apostle is at the end of his life. He finds himself in uh, as a prisoner uh, by the orders of the emperor of Rome, Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero at this time has begun a wave of persecution against the Christians. Believers are being martyred for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They are being fed to the lions. They are being burnt at the stake. And of course, as you know, that it was about five years previous to this that Paul the Apostle in his first imprisonment would stand before the Emperor Nero after two years of being under house arrest, where we know from the scriptures through the prison epistles that he penned, inspired by God, that he was chained to a Roman guard 24-7. He would have visitors that would come to him. And as he then would stand before Caesar Nero, because he went through this legal you know, nightmare that began in Jerusalem, would take him to Caesarea. As a Roman citizen, he would appeal to Caesar. And so he's under house arrest for two years, in the years 61, 62 AD, he would stand before Caesar Nero. With Paul's accusers not coming to Rome, he would be acquitted of any accusation that came against him. He was free to travel more or less for five years. As we know, as at the end of his third missionary journey, as he was writing to the Christians in Rome, he had not been there. He said, I desire to come to you. He would go to them, not in a way that perhaps he thought. He would go as a prisoner. And after he would be acquitted, after he would be released from that first imprisonment, he probably would go to Spain because that was his desires to go into that area. He would also, during those five years that leads us up to this point here, he would write a letter to Titus, one of his young disciples and protege who was pastoring the church at Crete. He would write Timothy, the first letter to Timothy. In both of those letters that are a part of the pastoral epistles, he would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy and to Titus about church order, conduct in the church, how you are to appoint leadership, uh, how they are to uh, prioritize uh, the corporate meaning of believers, the role of men and women in the church, how to minister to widows, all those things. And so Paul, as he continued to minister, now five years after his first imprisonment, he comes to this point where he is rearrested by the orders of Caesar Nero. Caesar Nero in 64 AD, he would begin this heavy persecution against the Christians as he burnt the city of Rome down. He's going insane. He has Peter arrested as well, and he would be in prison. And Paul, as he's at the end of his life here, these last words that, as he knows that his departure is at hand. He knows that he's going to be leaving this world and he's going to go to be with the Lord. And he writes now this last letter that we have of Paul the Apostle in the New Testament to his young protege, Timothy. He was one, Timothy, that Paul loved deeply. He loved dearly. He was one that uh, Timothy that had been with Paul ever since Paul's second missionary journey some 20 years before this. Timothy traveled with Paul. He was faithful to Paul, co-labored with Paul, even suffered with Paul. And so Paul the apostle writes to him and calls him a true son in the faith, a beloved son. Father, as we read these words continuing through uh, this epistle, I pray that we would sense the heart of the apostle Paul as well. And Lord, as he is inspired to write these things down, there's so much for us here, so much for us in our day in which we were living in. And so, Lord, teach us now. 
I pray that we would be attentive to the things that you show us now in the remainder of this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, in the opening statement of this letter, says, Timothy, I long to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I, I may be filled with joy. It brought Paul joy as he recalls the tears that were shed the last time that they saw each other. So the last letter that have, we have recorded of the apostle would be addressed to this man that was very close to Paul, there was this special bond between them that can only be found in Christ Jesus. And in this letter, we will see that Paul primarily is encouraging Timothy to be a godly man, to be a godly pastor, to continue to do the ministry, be faithful to what God has called you to do. In verse 6, if you were with us the last time, that Paul would write, Therefore, Timothy, I remind you to stir up the gift of God that is in you. In other words, as we talked about last week, Timothy, you keep teaching the truth of the word of God, the truth of the gospel message. Don't be afraid, Timothy. And remember that Timothy has a very difficult ministry because in 1 Timothy, we know that Paul was writing to him and encouraging him, continue in sound doctrine. We know in First and Second Timothy, there's no less than 25 references that Paul makes to Timothy that continue in the truth of God's word, continue to stand firm for the gospel. And we know that Timothy would have to deal with those who are bringing myths and fables and legalism and prosperity type of teachings that were not true. And so he says, you're going to have to deal with it, Timothy. So Timothy is dealing with uh, the challenge from within the church and then also the external forces that are coming against the church as well. And as Paul is in this dark, deep dungeon, this time he's not under house arrest. He is in a, a cistern that is dark, it is damp, the mandarin cistern that is their dungeon, and he knows that his life is coming to an end. And he says to Timothy that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and a sound mind. Timothy, you don't have to be afraid in the day in which we're li living in. Be faithful to the ministry which you have received from the Lord Jesus. Be sure that you continue to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And Caesar Nero had come against Paul and the Christians and soon is going to give the orders that Paul is going to face the executioner to be beheaded. And Paul writes, he hasn't given us a spirit of fear. So showing such confidence that he had in the Lord. The confidence that also, as he knows, that he is going to be put to death. But he speaks of the promise of eternal life that is found in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that he didn't have to fear Nero because he was going to go to heaven. And we know even as Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, that do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him that is God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul wasn't afraid of the one who could destroy his body. His reverence, his fear, uh, his, his trust, his rest was in God. And so should ours be as well. Not fearing man, which according to Proverbs chapter 29, is a snare. We know that Paul earlier in his ministry, in the first epistle that he wrote that we have recorded in the New Testament, that he would say in Galatians chapter 1, that I don't fear man. If I fear man, I can't be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. But he was trusting the Lord with his life, and he knew he had eternal life, the promise of eternal life, and we can as well. So as we continue, here's the apostle. He is encouraged. 
encouraging Timothy, he writes in verse 8 of 2 Timothy 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, you don't have to have a spirit of, of fear. And Timothy, you don't have to be ashamed of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ, nor be ashamed of me, his ambassadors. You don't have to be afraid of those who are going to come against you, those who are going to trouble you. Suffering for the gospel should be nothing that you are to be ashamed of. It would be 10 years previous to this that Paul, he would write to those Christians that were in Rome as they're experiencing persecution now, that he had said to them in Romans chapter 1, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And it is a message not only for Timothy as he's being encouraged, but it is a message for us here at Calvary Chapel this morning. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because it has the power to rescue people's lives, whoever they are. It is the power to save that which is lost, to bring life to us who are dead spiritually. Don't be ashamed. Don't be timid. Don't hesitate to give that truth, the good news that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and rose from the grave. And he is the source, the provider of forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And on this Thanksgiving weekend, we can be thankful for that. We can be thankful that we have that promise given to us, those of us who believe. And we know that Jesus would say to us that you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. Without the gospel, listen, people are in bondage and they're being held captive by the world, which cannot save you. If you are trusting in yourself or the world to save you, you will be lost because Jesus is your only salvation. And as a child of God, we are truly free because we know the truth, the truth of the gospel. And we don't have to have the spirit of fear, but the spirit of adoption that we have that we can cry out, Abba, Father. And as we have the Lord in our lives, as we believe in him for eternal life, we know that this world will cause trouble to us. Paul ended up in this dark dungeon because of the gospel. And earlier, as I mentioned, that Paul, he was a prisoner as he was rearrested by the authorities of Rome. But he did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. In the first imprisonment of Paul, as he wrote those prison epistles, he wasn't complaining. He wasn't murmuring. He didn't say that I'm a prisoner of Caesar Nero or I'm a prisoner of Rome. He never mentions that. He didn't say that, hey, uh, I, I'm in prison until justly, unfairly, because of unfortunate circumstances, he would write and he would say, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He said that my chains are for the furtherance of the gospel. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, the book of Colossians, a prison epistle, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings in the afflictions of Christ. The apostle saw it as a privilege to suffer for the sake of the gospel. So the question for me, for all of us, honestly, is do we rejoice? Do we see it as, as something that is a privilege and an honor to suffer for the gospel? And whatever degree that might mean. Because you see, later on, Paul's going to write to Timothy in this epistle that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will. Not that they might, or it's a possibility, but they will suffer persecution to some degree, to some way, 
at some time. We know that it was the apostles in the earliest days of the church. When you read Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, they arrested the apostles. They said, quit speaking the name of Jesus. You filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that was said of Calvary Chapel, of Christians here in Greeley, that we filled Greeley with the gospel message, with the message of Jesus Christ brings salvation and forgiveness? It would be wonderful. Well County, the front range here in Colorado. And they were doing that. They were preaching boldly and proclaiming truth in the gospel and salvation. There's no other name under heaven in which a man or woman must be saved. It is the name of Jesus Christ. And even though they were telling those apostles to be silent and keep quiet, they beat the apostles. We know in Acts chapter 5, it tells us that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know, I'm still working on that in my life or having the Lord work on that in my life because I know sometimes I can murmur, I can complain rather than rejoicing that, that any kind of difficulty comes my way because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of the words of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We can rejoice in the sufferings. Paul did. He knew that he would go through sufferings and afflictions and trials. He knew that he would go through it in his ministry. It didn't surprise him. He was told from the very get-go, from the very beginning... He was told that you're going to suffer many things for my namesake. And here he's encouraging Timothy, who would go through his own difficulties and trials in pastoring the church at Ephesus. And Paul says, you don't have to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me. It would be easy, not be easy for Timothy to support this imprisoned apostle. And Paul says, share with me in the gospel according to the power of God. You see, it's a message not only for Timothy, but for us as well. Sometimes we like to underline those promises that are good promises that, that we have in the scriptures, you know, uh, that uh, we put it on Facebook, we put it on social media. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me and, you know, and the muscle and all of this. And, and that's good. And, and it's great to be able to do that. But promises like this or exhortations like this, shame and the suffering of the gospel, this maybe isn't a verse that I want to underline. This is not an invitation that I'm so sure of. But remember how the gospel has freed you from sin, freed you uh, of the power of sin in your life. Remember that you are now a new creation in Christ. God has received us. And we are alive, truly alive spiritually, because before we came to Jesus, we were dead spiritually. We have the promise of eternal life. And as we remember that, we are to stand for the truth of the gospel. Jesus is my salvation. No one else, nobody else. And I hope and pray for all of us here at Calvary that we would not be wishy-washy about that. That we wouldn't go around saying, well, I believe what I believe and you believe what you want to believe and we'll just all end up in bliss together. No, that's not what God's word declares. And as you stand for the gospel, as you declare the gospel, you will, not that you might, 
you will find trouble from the world. And I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm not talking about, you know, in your face kind of evangelism kind of things. I'm talking about that you believe in the gospel and you live the gospel. You will be troubled by others. People will criticize you. They will come down on you. They will separate yourself from you. We live in a culture that is more antagonistic against the gospel than ever before and is getting worse. We live in a culture that is telling us, we don't want you to have your nativity scenes. We don't want you to sing about Jesus. We don't want you to, to tell the Christmas story, how the Son of God came, was born in Bethlehem. We don't want you to pray the name of Jesus in public. We don't want you to pray before a football game. All kinds of things coming against us as we are ones that believe in him, as we live for him. And you see, as I mentioned, I personally believe that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, that perhaps it's going to get worse. I pray for revival in this nation. I really believe that it is the hope for our nation is that there's a spiritual awakening. And it concerns me. We'll talk more about it in the prophecy update, that we're getting further away from the Lord. And even the church needs to get back to standing on the gospel message. But it may get worse as we stand for him. And we need to understand that and be willing to know that, you know what, Lord, nothing in this world can replace what I have, the glory that awaits me in heaven. And it may be that revival comes out of persecution. I don't know, but we are to pray. We are to stand for the Lord and to know that the world will come against us. And verse 9, who has saved us, our Lord, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God has saved us. It isn't according to our works, our own efforts. It is by his everlasting love and his wonderful grace. He has saved us. We cannot boast in our salvation. As Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. And he has also called us with a holy calling. In other words, to live a life after the Lord, living for him, following him, learning of him. And the Lord has saved us and called us. Again, it isn't that the Lord looked at me and said, you have such potential, Jeff. You know, I think that you're really worthy of it. It's all because of his incredible grace. Grace that unmerited, undeserved favor of God. It is according to his, his undescribable, unmeasurable, you know, love for me. It is according to his own purpose. And he did it before time began. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I don't understand it all, but I rejoice in it. Isn't it wonderful to think that God thought about you before the foundation of the world? And he set his love on you. And we are part of this great and eternal plan that God determined before time began. And you might be here on this Thanksgiving weekend and you might be thinking, no one thinks about me. God did. He did before the world was even made. And he does right now. Matter of fact, it is David that would write in Psalm 138. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than in the sand. That's a lot of thinking. He thinks about you constantly, continually, 
and he loves you and he has saved you as you come to him and he desires for you to live for him, to, to experience that life abundantly that he has for you and to give you real purpose in your life. And in verse 10, but now has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When Jesus came, he truly showed us what God's plan was all about. He has conquered death. He brought life to us. We have foreknowledge of sin and again, uh, our forgiveness of sin. And again, I want to remind you that Paul is getting ready to be executed but he knows he's going to go home to be with the Lord in heaven forever. My body may die, but I'm going to live on because Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life to those who are his. We continue reading verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul calls the gospel glorious. And as we continue reading in this section in verses 8 through 12, you just sense that Paul's just growing in joy and in confidence and strength as he's penning these words. He understands again that it's a privilege to suffer for such a glorious gospel, a great gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I am honored by it. Paul isn't saying, boy, I should have got a different occupation, you know, and I wouldn't be in this position. Or I don't know if this was worth it. He's speaking about eternal life. He's speaking about continuing to, to stand for the Lord and what it is an honor to, to suffer for his namesake. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In verse 11, I was appointed a preacher. Secondly, an apostle. Thirdly, a teacher of the Gentiles. Preaching is proclaiming the gospel to the lost. He was an apostle, which means sent out one. He would be sent out to the Gentiles to preach and to teach. And of course, we know that as he did, he would start many of the churches in Proconsular Asia, uh, in Greece, Macedonia, and Achaia. And they were started by Paul the Apostle. He went to those cities and he preached the good news, the glorious gospel, and people got saved. And then he began to teach them growing the Christians in the truths of God's word. Matter of fact, it's something that he had done in the city of Ephesus where, where Timothy is at presently here. We know that at his third missionary journey that he would preach the good news of salvation to the people in Ephesus. In the city, revival broke out. People were getting saved. And then as people were getting saved, he would begin to teach them. He taught them for two years. We know from Acts chapter 20 that Paul would say to the Ephesian elders, I have not neglected to give you the whole counsel of God's word. And from there, churches were planted by those young disciples of Paul throughout Proconsular Asia. He was preaching. He was teaching. I think that's what the church really needs today. I think that the church needs preaching today. Oftentimes in churches, people aren't given the opportunity to come to the gospel or respond to it. Teaching certainly is a great need, as it's lacking in the church today. Because there's an emphasis of feeling good messages. There's an emphasis of, of self, you know, help kind of messages and things like that, rather than the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God. And he says that, that I am called to do that. And because of these things, I suffer, but I'm not ashamed. Why? 
Because he writes, for I know whom I have believed. I have that underlined. I know whom I have believed. You see, as I read about Paul's ministry, he didn't always know why. He didn't always know when. He didn't always know where. But one thing that he knew every day was who. You see, it's the same with us. We don't always know why. Lord, why are you allowing this in my life? Lord, why am I going through this difficulty, this trial, this loss? We don't always know when. Lord, when am I going to come out of this storm? Lord, when am I going to see your promise be fulfilled to me? Lord, when are you going to, to, to work in this way in my life? We don't always know where. Lord, where should I go? Where do you want me? But we can know every day, every hour, every minute. We can know who. I know whom I have believed. That's the key. And it is important that we believe and we know that Paul, he was a great theologian. He was the greatest theologian in church history. He was inspired to write much of the New Testament. But it wasn't theology that got him through this dark, damp time where he could express this joy in his heart to Timothy and this peace that you sense that he has as he's sitting in that dungeon. He knew theology. He knew theologically he was going to heaven, that he was saved, he was sanctified, he was justified, he's going to be glorified. All those theological words, but more importantly, he says, I know whom I have believed. I know Jesus. I know my Lord personally, intimately, closely. He would say, oh, that I may know him in the book of Philippians. Oh, that I may know him. He's the one, the Lord, that has saved me, sanctified me. He's going to bring me to glory, not just my theology. Jesus on the hillside in Galilee would cry out to the multitude, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, only Jesus can give you rest. Only Jesus can save you. Those things that we talk about the Christmas season, joy and peace, it only comes from him. It's not just a doctrine or a theological position. But I want to emphasize what we believe is important. Of course, those of you who have been around here long enough, you know that sound teaching is of priority. Of course it is. And what we believe is very, very important. And Paul is emphasizing that to Timothy over and over again. Matter of fact, we're going to see he's going to emphasize it in the next verse. But listen, it isn't just a bunch of head knowledge. And I've known people that were well-versed in the scripture. They knew theology. They could, you know, very intelligently give you their doctrinal position. They'll call you up. They'll talk to me on the radio. And they want to argue. They want to discuss. That's all fine and dandy. They, they have all the different theological stands and all of that. But what can happen is they can be so far from the Lord and having a heart for him. And more than being known as a theological teacher, and I want to be a good teacher, faithful to the word of God. But more than that, I want to know him. And I want people to see something in my life that I really love the Lord and that I'm trusting in him. Not just theology, not just an intellectual kind of thing. Knowing the scripture does help us to know him. And as we know him, we can't help but love him because we see his faithfulness. We see his goodness. 
how glorious our Lord is, that I can truly trust in him, whatever it is that I'm facing. And Lord, when I do face the dark, damp times of my life, that I feel like that I'm in a dungeon, it is you, Lord, personally, that's going to see me through. So I can trust in you and I can rest in your love. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. Nero can think that he can take my life, but he can't because I've given my life to Jesus personally and he will keep me and he will save me. And Paul, of course, had given, you know, Jesus, you know, his life to him. He was committed to Jesus and everything that he did. He was committed to him because he believed in him personally and loved him. The most important thing in our Christian life is to love the Lord, to know him, to walk with him, to have that intimacy with him. Do you know that's what he wants with you? He wants that with you. And then he encourages Timothy once again to hold fast, verse 13, the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Timothy, of course, being told once again to be faithful to the truth. The sound words, and it's interesting to me that Paul this time says, hold fast to it, would suggest that something or someone will try to take the truth away from us. We know that the enemy will do that. He's the God little G of this world. He will try to take away truth from your heart. He's called the father of lies. He will try to blindfold you. He will deceive. He will take away He will take away truth from you. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. He's been doing it ever since Adam, and he's very good at it. So we are being exhorted that we are to hold fast the pattern of sound words. And that word pattern is interesting because it means a repeatable pattern. It's like a printing press that is making the same copy over and over again. In other words, Timothy, and it's a word for me, that you hold fast the pattern of sound words or sound doctrine. You don't come up with new doctrines. You don't come up with new revelations and new interpretations. God's word is forever. It isn't changing. It is eternal. The scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will never pass away. You see, there are those that Christians, unfortunately, they're always chasing after something new. Some kind of new movement in the church, some kind of new revelation, some kind of new this and that. And I've told people, if it's new, usually it's not true. And a lot of times when people claim that it's new, that it's just old repackaged false doctrine that comes along. There are those who will say, well, why don't you guys study the book of Enoch? Why don't you study the the gospel according to Thomas? Why don't you study these books? Why don't you listen to this guy? He claims to be a prophet. Listen to what he says. And they'll try to get you all sidetracked in all these things. Listen. Though even, you know, I had somebody not long ago said, why don't you get into Bible codes? No hidden messages and all of this. There are people out there, they want to hear something new. They, a new revelation. And so much of it contradicts what the Word of God has already declared. Listen, there's enough here in your Bible, 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, that we are to study and not to get sidetracked. And we are told to test the spirits to see if they are of God. And always remember this, that the word of God is your final authority. And if you don't know the word of God, you will get deceived in the world in which we're living in. 
There's too many voices out there. Paul later on is going to say the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itchy ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So Calvary Chapel, let's hold fast to the pattern of sound words that we have in the word of God and we're to do it in faith and love. What does that mean? You see, as I've mentioned, God's word is not just an intellectual exercise, but you believe and apply God's word for your life. You're convinced of the truth of God's word. And as you love people, loving people means that you give them the truth. Faith and love describes how truth is to be held. We hold it in faith, right? Truly believing it and living it. And then we hold it in love. Not being proud, not being arrogant, you know, but we are to be loving others and we're to give that truth in love to others. You see, if we don't, you can end up being flaky and going off into weird stuff or you end up being a Pharisee. The Pharisees, they boasted about how they were so committed to God, but they had made the word of God of no effect. They didn't believe in Jesus. They rejected him. We know that they were ones that didn't love people, that they were such a burden to people. So we are to hold fast the pattern of sound words and faith and love and that good thing which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. God in the person of the Holy Spirit, don't you know that the temp- you're the temple of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16? That the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the key to faithfulness is being yielded to and a dependency upon the Holy Spirit in your life. You see, it isn't I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to grit my teeth and, you know, eat glass and spit nails and I'm going to tough it out. It is, Lord, help me. Because as the Holy Spirit is working in your life and walking in the Spirit, you'll live a life that is pleasing to Him. You'll grow in the things of the Lord and in the Word of the Lord. And as we are to be faithful, Paul now, as we're going to close here in just a couple minutes, gives an example of unfaithful men. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me among who are phygelous and homogenous. Now, nothing is really known of these two guys listed in verse 15. But Paul names them as one who were unfaithful. Perhaps they were leaders in the church. But whatever the case, Timothy knew their situation because Paul says, you know this, Timothy. The indication here is that they skipped out on Paul when he was in trouble. You know, what a terrible thing to have your name recorded in God's word for all eternity as one who's an example of unfaithfulness. I don't want to be unfaithful to the ministry that the Lord has given to me. I don't want to be unfaithful to others. There are brothers and sisters in the Lord. None of us are perfectly faithful. We fail. We fall short. But I want to be faithful to him. I want to yield to him. I don't want to be unfaithful to what God has called me to do and to others. And then Paul, he contrasts these two guys with one that is faithful and was faithful to him. And I think we learn from him. The Lord grant mercy, in verse 16, to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. And the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So contrast that with Phygelus and Hermogenes in verse 15. He writes about Onesiphorus, the one who was truly faithful, the one who really cared for me, Paul writes. He would be one that perhaps it gives the indication from Ephesus. He ministered to me in Ephesus. And he really came through for me in my difficulty. In verses 16 and 17, what we learn of his faithfulness, we mark it by three things. Paul says, first of all, he refreshed me. What a wonderful thing to do with other believers is to refresh them and to bless them. He said that he refreshed me. Secondly, he wasn't afraid of my chains. When Paul was in prison, he found out who his true friends were. Onesiphorus was one that faithfully stuck by Paul. And he would go the extra mile because thirdly, he sought Paul out earnestly, zealously. It would not be easy to find Paul in Rome. He went from dungeon to dungeon. It would be dangerous for him to do that, but he did it. And as we close this morning, I think there's application to be made for us by this one who is faithful to Paul. Is there somebody this Christmas season that the Lord has laid on your heart to seek out? A brother or sister that isn't doing so well, hurting. You see, Onesiphorus, his name means help bringer. And he lived it. May we be ones that we help reach out, refresh others. This Christmas season, maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe that guy that really gets under your skin at work. Maybe it's somebody, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, whoever it might be, somebody at school, to seek them out, refresh them, give them truth, and to say, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel because it's a power of salvation for all who believe. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this, uh, this powerful epistle for us. And, Lord, I thank you that we can read it and we can, Lord, learn truth and grow, but to know of your faithfulness more and more, your goodness, your provision, and to know, once again, as we're reminded, it's a glorious gospel. As Paul talks about eternal life that is found in Christ Jesus. And I do want to pray while well, we got a few minutes. If you're here and you've never come to Jesus in faith, believing that he died for your sins and rose again, you see, he's your salvation. There is none other. Jesus, in that last night that he was with his disciples before he went to the cross, he would say to them that I am the way, the truth, not a way, but the way the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He would then that later that night be arrested. The next day he would be pinned to a Roman cross and he died for your sins and he cried out, it is finished. And then he was put into a grave, a tomb. He rose, he resurrected after three days. He's alive. He proved that he's the son of God that conquers sin and death. No one else did that for you, only Jesus. Every other religious leader still in their tomb. Only Jesus rose again to prove that he's the Son of God 
validating what he did on the cross. And the promise of God's word is if you come and believe and call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. We want to give you that opportunity right now. It's good news. He loves you. He wants to forgive you and for you to become a child of God. Listen, this world will not save you. It will only keep you in bondage and bring death. Jesus wants to free you and bring life. Will you call out to him right now? Right where you are, you can pray, Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess I'm a sinner and I believe you died for me on the cross. Forgive me. And I also believe that you're alive, speaking to my heart. You rose again. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I believe in you. And I'm calling out to you. And I want to walk with you and know you. And I thank you for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. In Jesus' name. Listen, if you prayed that prayer, when we finish communion, I want you to come up and tell the prayer team that you made a decision. But Because we want to follow up with you. We want to encourage you. But for all of us, believers, as we come to the communion table and partake of the elements, may we remember how the Lord has saved us.